1: Buy and print official US postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code THE GIST.
0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: It's Monday, April 6th, 2015, from Slate. It's the GIST. I'm Mike Pasca. So I got back from Chicago where I hosted a popular quiz game show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. It was very enjoyable. I always like working with the staff there. Plus, and they do tell the public this, they hint at it, but I want to make it clear that P.J. O'Rourke, his passion is leatherwork. he's an amateur tanner, and he makes all the guests host their own belt. You gotta come in a day early to get fitted, but it was, it was worth it. So the show, wait, wait, don't tell me, that is live, live before the uh, Chase Auditorium, which I used to think was an auditorium, like with naming rights, like, you know, first, fifth field, or city field. No, it's like an auditorium actually in the... Chase building. Like Chase employees use it when they have their, I don't know, breakout sessions. Anyway, they do tape the show when we do it live. We go for about an hour and a half, and as you know, it's an hour-long show on the radio, 50-something minutes when you take out the news and all the uh, underwriting credits and stuff. And it's a good strategy because when you go live, especially with an improv comedy show, some of the jokes won't land, some will land more than others, something will get, you know, stepped on and garbled. So it gives the people cutting the show more to work with that always is fine. But there's always one lie. and in this show there was one line too and going in I knew that this line was like a one-eyed cat who only I could fall in love with it was so let me uh, let me set it up for you we were talking about McDonald's and that the McDonald's game-changer was the breakfast around-the-clock idea so I started talking about how McDonald's was being clobbered by their fast casual competitors like Chipotle and Panera bread, and uh, then I laid this one on the panel. As you could hear, the crowd gave it an okay reaction. Felber, at the end, Adam Felber came in said he liked it. Announcer Bill Curtis correctly said we fought for it. PJ O'Rourke gave it the belt. I don't know if this is true, but I heard this rumor because, like you know, all these other places are supplanting McDonald's that the Hamburglar might actually change affiliations and become the. Panera Imbredzler. Imbredzler. <laughs> <laughs> the Imbredzler. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, uh, the, the, hey, guys in the booth who wrote the script. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's indispensable.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we fought for that one,
2: didn't we? <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, I, I, I think Imbretzler's pretty good. <laughs> The Imbredzler! He was the Embredsler. He was working the system from the inside. I've been thinking about the Imbredzler for a week. What a great character this would be. He'd have the green visor, but his catchphrase would be Robble, robble, absconble." The Imbredzler. Oh, Imbredzler, you tried to steal some bread, but you wound up stealing my heart. On the show today, let's talk TED Talk, the insight, the uplift, the formula, the pretension and I am going to keep spieling until the New York Times listens to me and changes your coverage of this mayoral race that's tomorrow. But first, the Bolivian mountain that eats men after man has consumed almost all of it. Potosi is a mountain in Bolivia that I had never heard of until I encountered it in Tom Zollner's new Kindle single, Come See the Mountain. It's the mountain that eats men as men for hundreds of years have eaten up the mountain. It spits out silver was once the richest source of silver in the world and tin and other metals. And just the story of the centuries of abuse that the mountain has visited upon the people of Potosi is extremely illuminating. Tom Zollner, in his new book, also gets into the issue of dark tourism. Don't know what that is, let's get into it now. Hello, Tom, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. What is dark tourism?
3: That's where you decide to go see a place where tragedy has visited. Auschwitz, for example, has been a tourist site uh, almost since the end of World War II. These places have a a fascination, a a kind of allure. It's a way of getting close to evil without directly experiencing it.
2: No, I've not been to Auschwitz. I would definitely go. I have been all to Dili Plaza, and I think that there's a difference between that experience and what you describe goes on in Potosi, but Maybe it's just a difference of tone and a difference of culture. So as a tourist, how do they introduce the mountain to backpackers from Switzerland, Canada, or journalists from the United States?
3: Yeah, this is a mountain, as you say, where mining continues to happen and under uh, extreme uh, pre-industrial conditions. They're scratching silver on an artisanal basis and dying at, at an astonishing rate. And you can pay 10 bucks uh, and and go watch this happening. You can uh, come into the tunnels yourselves and see these guys at work. There's a moral question behind this. Should we be uh, paying to gawk at people who are continuing to suffer like this?
2: Well, as far as the tourism goes, yeah, I think gawk would be the word. And maybe, I didn't know this happened, but you go to Milwaukee, they'll take you to an empty lot and they'll tell you this is the apartment where Jeffrey Dahmer ate his victims. I don't know about the historical versus the lurid aspects of that. Yet the 9-11 memorial, I mean, Auschwitz, the sixth floor museum, that is history. So maybe it is just tone. Maybe it's the people who put it together are sophisticated college graduates who know how to speak to a Western audience. And the guys who are running the tour at Potosi are maybe a little more rough around the
3: edges. Well, yeah, the difference, Mike, is that uh, in those places that you mentioned, the violence has stopped, the blood has stopped flowing in Potosi it is ongoing where is the the morality on that the flip side which i think uh, kind of redeems the question in some ways is well what's uh, what's the benefit of not knowing
2: i think i went to salem so that's a little similar they have cages where they said they kept the women accused of witchcraft. Again, 400 years ago, we're talking. And they might give you, oh, in one of these places, they have like souvenir broomsticks or a little a little totem, a little token. The token in Potosi is not symbolic. What do they give you when you go into the mine?
3: It's customary to give gifts to the miners. You'll be taken to a neighborhood called Calvario, where dynamite and detonators are sold openly, along with uh, pure grain alcohol and uh, some of the nastiest cigarettes you'll ever want to smoke. Uh, you buy these goods, which are bread and butter um, if you work underground. Yeah. You give them to the miners. Give the dynamite to the miners. And
2: are they? is that gifting? Is that sort of part of them playing a role, like Colonial Williamsburg? Or will they really use the dynamite you give them? to blow things up as part of their job.
3: Absolutely. And the transaction um, comes down to it's sort of like dynamite for photograph. You know, how would you like it, for example, if someone came into your workplace and, you know, was snapping pictures of you as a curiosity to show to people back home? It's, it's an inherently demeaning, uh, dehumanizing thing. And so the dynamite and the alcohol are a way to sort of soften that. And the miners are aware that um, uh, some of the income that comes to their cooperatives uh, is from these, you know, Western backpackers who come and look, and, you know, then they tell this great story when they get home. Uh, in some sense, uh, you know, this ebook book is no different in a way.
2: Yes, but... Without the ebook, I wouldn't have ever known about that place. Me knowing about it, what does it do? Is it going to put pressure on the Bolivian government to reform? Oh, no. And, right. That'll uh, never happen. So this all adds up to whatever the guilt of the tourist is, whatever indignities have been visited upon them, by me reading the book, or you writing the book, or the other tourists giving the guy a stick of dynamite, it's not a hundred thousandth of centuries of what this uh, mine and what this mountain has meant.
3: Yeah. I mean, it used to be said that uh, all the silver from that mine could build a bridge back to Spain, where, of course, the silver was taken during the uh, the time of colonialism. Uh, and in return, a uh, bridge made out of the bones of all the miners that died in the name of extracting that silver could be made. I mean, this has been going for
2: hundreds of years.
3: 468.
2: And... Wow. Within half a century, you wrote, of discovering this mine, the town of Potosi at the base of the mountain, had more residents than Rome or Paris.
3: Yes, um, it was a frenzy of pre-capitalism. This was, a, this was a mineral bonanza. I mean, this hard currency essentially, uh, you know, catapulted Spain to the top of the world order. And some of that hard currency, uh, in fact, most of it leaked out of Spain uh, into, uh, into the rest of Europe and helped Britain, for example, finance its industrial revolution. How did this assignment come to you? I assigned myself. I had read about it, and uh, I just had to go see it. I felt quite conflicted, Mike, about paying the 10 bucks to go down into those shafts and, and watch the guys at work. I mean, I felt like I you know, wanted to and in some sense had to, but I didn't feel completely good about it either. As a journalist, have you been to other
2: sites where you've seen people in terrible conditions? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah no so question. was the difference here that you were a little complicit?
3: The difference was I was paying for it, Yeah, you know, and and that it was something that uh, was, in fact, listed in Lonely Planet. Uh, One of the former miners told me, you know, this is sort of like looking at animals in a zoo.
2: You know, with a lot of kinds of tourism, especially, you know, extractive tourism, there's been a reform. There's a general consensus on what best practices are or, you know, what constitutes ethical tourism versus not. Is it not gotten there with dark tourism or slum tourism or some of the tourism that you're talking about? Yeah, this is
3: a new frontier. This is what I call dark ecotourism. This is, in a sense, uh, watching the bloodshed of the earth. You know, this is uh, chartering an airplane, as many have done, to oversee the great Pacific garbage patch. Um, This is going to see glaciers being calved off at an alarming rate. You know, this is watching, in a sense, the, the deterioration of the earth. And uh, this is a new uh, economy.
2: So is there a way that uh, someone interested in this? And maybe if you're interested, perhaps you're appalled by it, by global warming or what's going on with these miners in Bolivia. Is there a way to approach that? Any way to actually see these things, but also take away some of the guilt?
3: Well, Mike, I found nothing more analogous than the old custom of religious pilgrimage. There's a narrative of sin. We know that, in some sense, we're complicit. And going to visit these places is a way, uh, in a sense, to uh, atone for that guilt. Dark ecotourism is a way to a 21st century secular way to educate oneself in uh, the perils that the planet is facing and to, in some sense, uh, make, uh, make a personal journey towards a deeper understanding in much the same way that religious pilgrimage functioned in the Middle Ages. Come see the mountain, Tom Zoller did. That's the name of the Kindle
2: single about this mountain, this wealth of minerals, the source of suffering in Potosi, Bolivia. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. One of the best recommendations I make to small businesses, and this comes up a lot. Hey, Mike, I'm a small business. My livelihood depends on your insight. You're a guy who worked for a non for about 10 years, and now you're a podcaster. I'm coming to you for insight. What can I do? i like, let me ask you a question. You send out a lot of things? I do. Then use Stamps.com. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping so convenient. and saves time and money. You can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your computer. When the small business comes to me, what else? Well, I'll tell you small business. Once you try it, you won't go back to making time. Time consuming trips to the post office. You know, trips to the post office really is time consuming. I know. Even this conversation is cutting into your bottom line, small business. To get started, stamps.com has a special offer for my listeners and for you, small business. Use a promo code. It's the gist. That's the promo code. You get a no risk trial, so there's nothing to lose. You get a $110 bonus offer. It includes digital scale that calculates exact postage for letters and packages. I see you nodding, small business. It does sound good, right? I mean, it tells you it's not just a thing. That Prints at home. It tells you exactly how much it's going to cost. It's very convenient. You can, you can get up to fifty-five dollars in free postage if you use this special offer. Remember, for my special offer, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. Take it easy, small business. What is that you do? Oh, that's disgusting. Okay, I'm not. I'm not here to judge. <music> If Oprah was our mother confessor, if Larry King was the safe space to take batting practice with softballs, the TED Talk has become a new kind of forum. It's for soul-bearing, agenda-setting, thesis-proffering. Last week, Monica Lewinsky didn't go on a talk show. She didn't even rely on Twitter to spread her 140 characters of clarity. She did a TED Talk about high-tech bullying. The talk was called The Price of Shame.
1: you're looking at a woman who was publicly silent for a decade, obviously that's changed.
2: Well, I'm here to talk about TED Talks. I don't know if it'll end in the nice red bow that a TED Talk always does. With Megan Husted, author of How to Be Useful and More Than Conquerors, a memoir of lost arguments. She's recently written in the New York Times Sunday Review, The Church of TED, where she looks at the TED Talk a little like the religious upbringing that she knew as a girl. Thanks for coming in, Megan.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So, yes, the Church of Ted. I mean, I have my own arguments with Ted, which we'll get into. I think they're pat. I think they rely on a turn or an insight. You know, in general, I think they're a little like uh, Malcolm Gladwell pieces, which are great for the popular audience, largely great. But then when the experts get a hold of them, they're like, well, you're leaving out the complicating stuff. So they're uncomplicated. They leave out the dissenting argument. These are some of my problems. But your problem with it, you put a finger on the parallels to religion, the parallels to a certain kind of religion. What, yeah, I do parallels
1: that? between the TED Talk and uh, what I call the Tent Revival Sermon, yeah. which is sort of the wandering preachers back in the day who would sweep into town and gather these people and lead them through this a, a problem, a human problem, and then implicate them in a way and, and make them feel bad about how things are and then hand them uh, the solution, which starts with them.
2: Did you go to many of these?
1: I were quite a few, yeah. Both my grandfathers were Baptist pastors, and then my parents uh, were missionaries. So from the age of three onwards, I was surrounded by a lot of people who were quite serious.
2: So what were the beats of one of your grandfather's sermons? And overlay that with a TED
1: Talk. You sit there, you're confronted with what you're doing wrong.
3: Well, I have news for you. We were once just as certain that the world was flat. We
0: were wrong then, and we are wrong again. What do we teach our children about emotional hygiene? Nothing. If you think that true
1: strength means never showing any weakness, then I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. By any standard, this is wrong.
2: It's just wrong.
1: Then you're sort of invited to atone for your sins in a way. And my grandfather, Wes, would do like an altar call at the end, where you could come forward and and make a commitment.
2: It can be done in seven years with the right backing. Those who join me in making it happen will become a part of history.
1: We absolutely have to do better, and I know that we can do better.
0: This is the future of travel, and I invite you to join me to do that, to change your travel. We're doing it all over the world now, from Ireland to Iran to Turkey, and we see ourselves going, everywhere to change the world. Thank you.
1: And you're gonna go forth and you're gonna do better next. Right. you know you're gonna do better tomorrow right.
2: no at that point people weren't tweeting things like dudes Ma- Monica lewinsky <laughs> killed it they gave her a standing ovation in the lobby which is what they tweeted after Monica's. but they want that they want that instant gratification that that you know, was so good the instant hurt.
1: gratification yeah, yeah. yeah and the assurance that you're on the team yeah um and you are all sort of in line in alignment I think would be the term they didn't use that term then either and I and I I'd stepped away from the church when I was at 15 or 16. And I hadn't been party to that sort of feeling in a room until I was not at TED, but it was sort of a TED offshoot. Yeah. And there were three days of speakers. I think most of the speakers had been at TED before, because so if, you, if you kill it at TED, that creates a lot of opportunities for you. Like there's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of plane tickets and conference. You know hotel rooms there's a circuit to get on yeah Yeah. just like
2: in preaching in some circles right you get your (laughs) name out there you become a televangelist some of these people get tv shows people pay
1: for your hotel rooms which i mean i would you know that sounds that sounds lovely um i hadn't had that same feeling that i was in this room with people who had sort of been like brought to this crescendo of conviction that they were gonna go make the world a better place until I was at this conference. And emotionally, I felt like I was right back in there by all these people, really nice people, really nice people really wanting things to be better. Yeah. And and, and convinced they were part of the solution. And And they were testifying, you know, and it it freaked me out. Well, Um, another
2: aspect of it is these people convince themselves that they are in the minority and most of the world is off track, just like the religious, you know, we live in a world, an irreligious world. We live in a world where most people haven't, heard the good word. And, you know, the people of TED, oh, if only the unwashed masses could understand what we're saying about the Human Genome Project or seeds or cyberbullying or something that actually, for the most part, isn't really deep. It just adheres to these conventions of the TED talk. It seems like it's challenging conventional wisdom, but definitely not the conventional wisdom of the people there.
1: I, no, it doesn't seem so to me that it's that challenging, and yeah. I think, and all these organizations, there's there's this point at which dissent is not tolerated. Now, if you were to go to the TED stage and say, "There's all this talk about global warming, and we we've, we've agreed, her that it's a big problem," but this isn't ha- taking place in Vancouver. How many miles did you fly to get here? Yeah, that would not be welcome.
2: Well, that's yeah, I the... mean, you
1: know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. and and th- that's fine. You know, you can say, well, yes, of course I flew here because blah, 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 blah. But maybe you need to admit to yourself that what you claim to care about might not be what you actually deep down care about. And I
2: also think it's so driven by the anecdote, right? The personal anecdote, I mean, just like politicians, just like preachers, I mean, you know what connects, stories connect, stories about people connect. So you tell a story about a people, about a person, especially if it's yourself, I'm here to tell you that I used to believe that kids learned one way and then I was a teacher and then in a flash of insight, I learned, they learned the other way. But in real life, the way knowledge is gained are things like stops and starts and broad studies and things with verifiable sample spaces, snore, I'm snoring. It's not a great story about the year I spent in India teaching kids.
1: I mean, I'll, I'll, t- I'll be very honest with you. The first draft that I did with my editor at the New York Times talked about the one thing that I thought might improve a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. It was, <laughs> and I'll, t- I'll tell you right now that this did not go anywhere because it was too weird. My editor was just like, no. Would say that it'd be fun if they had a nod to original sin yeah. <laughs> you know that it comes to original sin which is basically like at, at human nature we mess things up and we mess things up why because we just do and that's a core of our being and we will find some way even if we're happy to be unhappy if we're doing well we won't just sort of fumble out of laziness or not having the right information we'll fumble because we want to on some level mm-hmm. like we like it We like things to get nasty, you know? And I wish they would talk about that.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for coming in wearing a wraparound headset and that black unitard.
1: (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks again.
2: Megan Husted is the author of How to Be Useful. And More Than Conqueror is a memoir of lost arguments. I think you held your own in this one. This was not a lost argument. Okay. Good job. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel, it's becoming a rom-com. Look, I don't want to bore you guys with the same stuff over and over again, the same old spiels. But, you know, sometimes I get the idea that the New York Times simply is not listening to the gist. Damn it, news media, New York Times especially. You are covering the Chicago mayoral race abysmally. There are three, let's say three categories of misreporting that get noted as misreporting, right? First is whenever you make a huge mistake, a scandalous mistake, maybe it's even a hoax. We're seeing that with Rolling Stone in the UVA article. The second is when you engage in biased, politically biased reporting, over-the-top political bias. There's a whole infrastructure to root this out, right? The Daily Show will note what they said on Fox. The Media Research Council will talk about what they saw on The Daily Show. It's the circle of blame. The third is the thing that's terribly underreported. And eventually that might get coverage and they might look back and say this was underreported except by one guy. If the thing blows up, you might say, my gosh, where was the media on this? What we're seeing now out of the national media, especially the New York Times, in its reporting of the Chicago mayor's race is a kind of misreporting that usually doesn't get noticed. What it is, is using a newsworthy enough event to fit a narrative, stuffing it into that narrative box. So the New York Times tells us that this is a race, the mayor race in Chicago, will there be voting tomorrow? Rahm Emanuel against challenger Jesus Chuy Garcia. The Times tells us it's about liberalism or it's about the death of the political machine. Today, the headline was, in Chicago's reshaped politics, unions are divided over the mayoral race. Three days ago, it was about Jesus Chuy Garcia when the Times wrote, Candidate for Chicago mayor struggles to unite Latinos and blacks. It sounds tense. It sounds fraud. It sounds like things are really hanging in the balance. The truth is, Chuy Garcia uniting Latinos and blacks. He's not even doing that good a job with Latinos. Chicago Tribune, so they get into more detail, more accurate detail, less sensationalistic detail, less drama Driven detail in the local press and the Chicago Tribune polled its readers and Tuesday they said that 52% of Hispanic voters are backing Garcia and 36% are supporting Rahm Emanuel with 9% undecided. And that's, not, that's not a great lead for a guy who could become the first Latino mayor of Chicago. The media is always biased toward conflict. Toward a close race, and the headlines I read to you show that bias. But they also reveal a bias. I'm especially talking about the Times, but I see this on the networks also that they really want this race to be a comeuppance, or at least an upending of expectations and probably a referendum on bigger issues. They want it to stand for something. But it just isn't, and it just doesn't. But they won't stop pretending that it does. It's about the incumbent, Rahm Emanuel, not really being loved. But going to cruise to an easy victory, whether the media wants that or not. Oh, but wouldn't it be exciting if the dark and foreboding announcer guy who introduced the last debate were accurately setting the stage when he said A shakeup in Chicago politics as usual. For the first time in the city's history, voters force a runoff election. But the problem is, Rom is gonna win. He's up 10 points or more in every poll. Rahm Emanuel tries to beat back a flawed premise. Chewy Garcia hopes that this will be a referendum on all men named Chewy. The New York Times hopes the gist gets off their case after tomorrow. And Lauren Shulian, who's been covering the race for WBEZ Radio in Chicago, is puzzled by the Times take. Why is the New York Times so damn fascinated by this race?
4: You know, that's something I also have been interested in. In fact, I was at an event on, what was it, Tuesday, and CNN was there. Yeah. I think, honestly, it's just, there's two things. One is Mayor Rahm Emanuel, or Rahm Emanuel, I should say, as a human, has always been of particular interest to the D.C., national world right Mm -hmm. he's been this kind of polarizing entertaining figure in politics and people wanted to see where he goes and now he's struggling you know he's having to fight a battle with a name that people on a national scale don't even know But the second thing is, I really do feel like people just are grasping at straws for anything that can kind of foreshadow what 2016 may look like. You know, is this the way that we're going to be? Are we going to have to be more progressive? Do Democrats want, you know, uh, more even more left leaning someone You know, what do unions want? Where's money going to go? I mean, those are my only two guesses. But it is very weird to see, like, CNN or the New York Times next to me and my press corps pals.
2: Well, tomorrow, Lauren's Chicago press corps pals will pull an all-nighter. And Chewy will give one of those speeches that says, We came out of nowhere. We started a movement. We came up a little short. So I called to congratulate Mayor Emanuel. No, 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 no. One of those. One of those speeches. And the National Press Corps will mention the results of the race in passing. With no thought of, well, I guess the union's lost. Or, well, I guess liberalism is where we thought it was. Or, well, I guess we did get an answer to all those things we said this race was about. And it was about the normal things that didn't change much. No, they're not going to do any of that. They'll just say, oh, Rahm Emanuel is swept back into office. And the media will move on to the next thing. What's the next thing? Special election on May 5th to fill Michael Grimm's Staten Island seat. Will this be a referendum on unions? Crime? Or yet another case of voters either not being given the opportunity or flat-out rejecting candidates named Chewy. This could be, dare I say, will be a big national trend. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Andrea Salenzi. She is neither frazzled nor corabantic. Yeah. Corobantic. Just came across this word. It comes from in classical mythology: the Corobanths were any of the spirits or secondary divinities attending Sybil with wild music and dancing. Also, uncorobantic is Claire Tennisgetter, the gist intern. She is generally unfazed, not frazzled, but she is wrought which makes managing producer Joe Meyer, just judging from the organization chart, overwrought. But this also makes executive producer Andy Bowers so over-overwrought. I only bring this up to say that I am not at my rope's end, but is that really a good thing? I mean, what, what if it means that I have just enough rope to hang myself with? Or depending on what the rope is attached to, maybe it's curtains for old Mike. But for They Might Be Giants, which every Monday favors us with a world debut song as part of their Dial-A-Song project, for They Might Be Giants, we have here now, End of the Rope.
0: Then you knew. Where did the end of the rope go? I forget now. Did I let go? After you left me hanging on your words, which hung down like a rope. Where did the end of it go? I'll never know. Your In the void Where did the end of the rope go? I forget, now, did I let go? Long ago you left me hanging On your words which hung down Like a rope from the sky Where did the end of it go? No one can